Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Megan Gibson, Senior Editor International in London. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm interviewing Ece Temakaran, a Turkish author and journalist. She was one of Turkey's most prominent political columnists until, in 2012, she was fired from her job for writing negatively about Recep Tayyip Erdogan's government. Following the attempted military coup in 2016, and subsequent crackdown on journalists in the country, Kemal Kran left Turkey. She continues to write about the dangers of Erdogan's government and authoritarianism around the world. Ejay, it's a pleasure to have you joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Megan. Thanks a lot. So I wanted to start by kind of delving into a bit of your actual story and your experience with Erdogan's government. At what point during his rule, I guess we can say, did you really begin to get concerned? What were the first red flags you saw that really made you realize your your country was changing? Well, it was actually from the very beginning. I was an active journalist then, and I wasn't only a political columnist, but I was also going around the country, especially before the elections. And the first time Erdogan came to power. It was 2002. And right then, actually, I said something uh, different is coming right now. And we cannot really know what it is because it was a movement, not a party necessarily. Um, So it was interesting from the very beginning and quite unpredictable, I should say. But then uh, the first signs, I think, were very visible when Erdogan came to power for the second time in 2007. However, unfortunately, it was not easy to talk about this, especially on international level, because for those who are old enough would remember that Barack Obama was supporting this government, this mild Islam, perfect marriage between mild Islam and democracy was the, you know, the thing 
after 9-11, when Barack Obama came to power and he find, tried to find an ideological solution to the Islamic radical Islamists and so on. So Erdogan was shown as an exemplary leader for the Muslim world, which actually put Turkey in a different place because we like to think about ourselves, our country as a secular country, whereas we were suddenly redefined as a Muslim country. So that was interesting anyway. But that was, you know, the first signs were very visible in 2007. But whenever I gave a speech, let's say in London School of Economics or House of Commons in London or in Washington or New York, and whenever I said something negative about Erdogan and his regime, I was treated like uh, a person who is against democracy. So that narrative, you know, equating Erdogan with the democracy, the real democracy, uh, was quite popular then. I remember in Oxford, you know, the spin doctors of the, this regime were giving speeches and people like me were not even allowed to comment on these speeches. So there was a lot of intellectual confusion on international level, I, say, uh, I would say. But it became absolutely embarrassing to support this regime after 2013, after the Gezi uprising, I guess, both on national and international level. And for your experience, I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, you, you found yourself fired from your job writing political columns because of your um, you know, stance against the government. But then you didn't leave the country for good until 2016. So what both were those intervening years like? And what was it that finally prompted you to, to, to get out of the country for good? Megan, this is very interesting because, you know, somehow this line has become the sexiest line in my CV to be, <laughs> to be, to have been sacked because of political reasons, which I don't actually like. Uh, because, by the way, there are so many journalists who lost their jobs uh, due to political oppression in Turkey. Uh, I was w the first one in the mainstream, uh, I was the second one in mainstream media that they dared to, you know, excommunicate, so to speak. In 2012, I was in Tunis. Uh, I was writing my novel, Women Who Blow or Not, and I got this telephone call which lasted like, 10, 15 seconds from my editor-in-chief because there were, uh, you know, no explanation was needed. I knew why it was happening. I wrote these two columns, which were very, you know, harsh on the government. And it was only, you know, natural that I was going to be, I, I was going to lose my job. So that was then, I'm mean, like, it has been, what, nine years now. In 2012, I came back from Tunis. I published a novel, and then 2013 Gezi happened. You know, on and off, I have been receiving threats from, you know, from the newspapers that represent the government, from uh, government supporters and so on. Uh, 2013, during Gezi uprising, it became more, you know, disturbing, those threats, li life threats and rape threats. They love rape threats like, for some reason. And then 2016, when 2016 happened, when the mm, military coup attempt happened in Turkey, it was obvious to me during that night, actually I wrote about this to Guardian even during the night that it happened, 
it was going to be used as the biggest advantage by Erdogan, this biggest crisis. He's a politi- he's an amazing political animal. I mean, like he's he's really genius in that sense. So this biggest crisis of democracy in Turkey was naturally going to be the biggest advantage for him. So he did it. And, you know, it happened during the night. And by morning, we were living in a different country. So it wasn't only threats that I was receiving personally, but also the general environment was quite disturbing. And it became almost impossible to have some sort of peace to think about politics, to talk about politics, etc. So, yeah, that was, and also, unfortunately, <laughs> publication date of my book, Turkey, the Insane and Melancholy, coincided with the military coup. And I was in London to promote the book. And obviously, you know, media likes this kind of good timing. I had all the media attention. And when I, <laughs> when I was coming, uh, coming back to Turkey, I was at the passport line. And that was a time when they were confiscating the passports of the people from opposition. So this lady, lady officer, took her time to go through my passport too long. And I thought, oh, no, it's happening. Either they're going to arrest me or confiscate my passport, and that's it. And then she screamed, can we take a selfie, please? I remember half of my face laughing, half of my face crying, and I thought, I cannot take this anymore. This is the unpredictability of the situation is extremely exhausting. And also it doesn't allow you to write and think with full capacity. That is why almost on an impulse, actually, I came to Zagreb. And since then I'm living in Zagreb in this beautiful uh, city, which is a perfect combination of Austrian-Hungarian culture and Balkan culture, I would say. It's interesting to me that you you made the point that, you know, obviously a lot of journalists in in Turkey now have been, you know, not only fired for their views, but imprisoned for their political stances. At the time when you were fired, were you surprised at the lack of support you got from colleagues or what, or was there any support even, you know? You know, I'm like, uh, I'm giving speeches and so on. And wh- whenever there's the Q&A part, people ask me about exile and exile somehow is still a sexy word, obviously. And, you know, there are people who in the Western universe who want to see the story in me of that story of, you know, this woman, uh, intellectual woman, uh, escaping from barbarians, (laughs) throwing herself into the arms of civilization and so on. I never liked that narrative and I'm kind of against that narrative. But one, I'm like, I became clearer during the time I stayed in Zagreb that it wasn't fear that led me to leaving the country. It was the lack of support. It is, you know, uh, first of all, there people were confused. We People were still sort of hopeful that this regime somehow will be more merciful by time. For some reason, they believe that. And also, I'm like, I don't like to say this, but I have to say it. It is also because I'm a woman, because they don't make heroes out of women, unfortunately. They still don't do that. So I wasn't the hero. I wasn't the victim. So what does that make me? So I wanted to figure out the answer to that question as well. That's one of the reasons I came to Zagreb. 
I'm going to come back to that, but I do want to talk about where Turkey is today, specifically with the economic crisis at the moment. So over the course of the last few months, the currency has plunged to record low levels. It seems like every week we're at a new new low level. How, from what you hear from friends or uh, family or former colleagues back in Turkey, how has this impacted the population's day-to-day lives? Well, first of all, I mean, like living in another country uh, and writing about your country, the country you left behind somehow, makes you a citizen of, how shall I put it, like a country, a, a screen country. You're constantly on the screen. So you're physically in another country, but like mentally you are still back there somehow. So I am uh, also aware that something is happening and it feels to me like there is like 50 minutes to collapse total collapse. What I see today in Turkey is very much like what we had seen in Venezuela a few years ago. So it is excruciating to watch this. It's not only the poor people, but people, my friends, let's say one theater act, well-known theater actress, one rock star, and, you know, uh, two lawyers. These are my closest friends. They are talking about the sale quotas in supermarkets. They are trying to stock things and so on. So life is completely, there is no normality. Let's put it like that. No political normality, no economic normality. So it is extremely exhausting. So living has been reduced to surviving. For people who were politically active, that was already like that but now it became you know normal people who has nothing to do with politics or who are actually supporting this government this regime are now suffering as well so the thing is i'm like we people me i and people like me uh we were always expecting this democratic transformation in a peaceful way but this economic crisis now is creating the fear of a violent transformation in Turkey. And yeah, so I, I was going to point out that uh, much of this crisis is, it's widely believed that it's because of Erdogan's backed monetary policies, namely, you know, not raising interest rates. Given that, it's not surprising that he's plunged in polls recently. But he also, as you said before, he's an amazing political animal and he has this uncanny ability to, you know, weather myriad crises. Do you think that this is actually a, a turning point where he, he's going to lose his grip even on, on his base? I think he already did. He already lost it. I mean, like nobody dares to talk about this on Turkish media, but we have seen videos of him dozing off in the middle of live air. We have seen videos of him having difficulty walking or keeping his, you know, uh, merits together and so on. So I think he lost a grip. Uh, and <laughs> unfortunately, we are at the phase where we caught the tiger by the tail, where the tiger, tiger is the most dangerous. But I guess we have to make a distinction here. You know, it's not only Erdogan, but leaders like Modi, unfortunately, Boris Johnson, Trump, Orban. These leaders from day one, they start creating this financial web. And through this web, they pump political money 
to their supporters. I'm not talking about the big capital, big businessmen, big corporate, you know, networks and so on. I'm talking about the laymen, about the, you know, about the ground floor of society. That money also goes to those people. That is why we see all these people defending Erdogan and his regime as if they are fighting for their lives. Well, because they are fighting for their lives. So probably 30% of my country is somehow benefiting from this political money. So that is why we see the plunge in the support for Erdogan. And that support has come to its minimum right now. Only those whose life is connected to Erdogan's political career are now supporting him. So we will see how much it will work for Erdogan to survive politically. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. There's a quite pivotal election next year, and the opposition parties have kind of embraced. It's not unique because a few other countries have done it now. I mean, Hungary has done it. Brazil is preparing to do it as well, where the opposition parties, you know, band together and rally together to to kind of overtake Erdogan. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what these different opposition parties are like. Um, are, are they going to have any kind of challenge in working together? What What is the spectrum on the opposition like? Well, Turkey in particular, but probably there, the other countries would say the, say the same thing, I guess. Uh, such alliances are quite fragile. 
especially in during this crisis of representative democracy, I think those that kind of fragility is exploited by right-wing populist leaders uh, or leaders with fascist inclinations. And it's easy to exploit uh, on these fragilities. Um, so for Turkey, it's social democrats uh, and the spectrum uh, of left, let's say, but also now there is far right. They wouldn't call themselves far right, of course. They would call themselves centrists, but who wouldn't anyway? Nowadays, everybody's everybody's a centrist against the right wing populism. Anyway, so it is a wide spectrum, political spectrum that they are planning to build. I don't know if it's going to be. I cannot tell this. I don't know if it's going to be successful. I am hoping because this is literally the last chance for Turkey to survive Erdogan. <laughs> but, you know, these right-wing populist leaders, if ha- they have done something good for the humankind, it was to show us that how fragile the representative democracy is and how actually it became nonsense when you pulled out the social justice from, this, from the equation. So... This lack of social justice, deep down, I think this is the problem. The lack of social justice is exploited on several levels in several ways by these leaders. So I don't know how Erdogan is planning planning to exploit this, this fragile alliance, but we'll see very soon. The current problem in Turkey is... There is a protest rising. We can all feel that. Everybody's feeling, especially after the economic crisis, after, you know, Turkish lira deprecated so dramatically. And there is also the pandemic. Winter is coming and so on. Uh, Winter is literally coming. (laughs) We are living the winter now. So there is a, you know, there is a growing sense of protest. And now this alliance is trying to calm people down so that we can all wait for a democratic transformation, for a sort of, you know, democratic process to change all this situation, all to change this regime. That is the question in Turkey now. Will we be able to keep down the people, keep down these protests so that we can go to the elections? Or will it be... Uh, violent process which is completely unpredictable at the end we'll see i'm sure there's people other than erdogan who are also eager to kind of exploit that possibility for for violence as well oh absolutely absolutely i'm like we have seen that in the last uh, you know a few years ago it was again we were going for elections and suddenly there was a bomb exploding in a peace protest so we know that it can go really, really, really bad. So that is the fear, I think, nowadays, especially those who are among those who are thinking about Turkish politics. I wanted to ask you about a piece you've written where you, you talk about Turkey's mayors as posing, a handful of Turkey's mayors as posing a challenge to Erdogan's authority, including Ankara and Istanbul's mayor. How are these cities kind of becoming 
centers of opposition, I guess you could say, for, for the ruling party. It is Ankara, Izmir, uh, Istanbul, uh, Adana, Mersin. There are, you know, uh, actually there are more than three. There are many more. These big cities, these are the biggest cities, have been now run by opposition politicians since the local elections. And they are showing a great performance. They are the only hope in Turkish politics, if you ask me, like true hope. And this is going to be the same thing for other countries as well, I think. You know, it will, uh, the local politics will be the first reaction, you know, the f- first hubs of reaction. So that leads me to my next question. I was going to ask if next year Erdogan is removed from power, how confident are you that the Demic democratic institutions in the country can be rebuilt is it are they are they destroyed or do these mayors and this idea of embracing radical love does that give you hope <laughs> first of all I'm like i know uh, only i know 20 people who would dance <laughs> on the city center <laughs> when that happens uh, but turkey is a strange country because I can see, like in 2023, if Erdogan's regime is ending then, I can see my country behaving as if the last 20 years did not happen. Like, let's not talk about it anymore, kind of. I can see that happening. But obviously, the institutions that have been ruined altogether uh, under Erdogan will have to heal themselves. Because it's not only judiciary, it's not only representative democracy, or it's not only economy. Seriously, I mean, really, it ruined this regime, ruined the very ethics uh, that keeps a society together. This regime destroyed the intention of living together, which is one of the pillars of a society. So it will take a lot of healing to go back to where we were or you know create a new society that is somehow less sick so to speak i mean we even saw that after donald trump was voted out of office that everyone absolutely and it was only four years you see (laughs) only four years and it was trump i mean like it was so easy to get rid of him but even him even getting rid of him took entire american institution to come together. All the institutions of American democracy had to come together to get rid of this one crazy man who doesn't know anything about politics. Now, our job is harder, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, you've had 20 years of of erosion. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And obviously, that goes back to lots of things that you've written before, namely in your 2019 book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. In Mentioning that book, what for other countries that should always be, you know, on guard against, you know, a backsliding of democratic norms, what what is the first line of defense? The first line of defense is if somebody, a political, you know, figure starts talking about uh, starts, uh, you know, targeting the intellectuals, less liked intellectuals, let's say. That is the first defense line, especially they choose women, especially they choose women journalists when they do this. 
that is the first sign, I would say. Um, but, you know, in the book, there are seven steps. And the first step is if somebody calls political initiative a movement, uh, that is something to, you know, look, to, 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 that we have to look carefully. Because uh, these fluid concepts like movement and so on, you know, curiously to embracing, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I guess there's an aspect of, you know, almost the religious when you're branding something, a movement. Yeah, I'm like, you know what, what they do perfectly well, and this is something I noticed after How to Lose a Country was published, what they do perfectly well is politics of emotions. They are manipulating the emotions of the masses and they're playing on these emotions. There are no, well, we're living in a world where facts do not convince people, where truth is torn apart and so on. So they are using emotions as a political tool, which I mean, like, I cannot, I cannot blame them. Politics is actually about emotions. My concern is, what are we doing about politics of emotions? Why are we dismissing this while right-wing populists are thriving on this politics of emotions? This is actually something to think about, I guess. That's why I wrote the other book, (laughs) the new book, together, because we have to think about politics of emotions, like, seriously. And I guess that kind of circles back to what you were saying about these mayors in in Turkey who have embraced, embraced a new way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, we have to have a sort of compass when it comes to emotions, because right now, every, you know, our politics globally is running on emotions. It's running on fears. It's running on devotion, running of submission, anxiety, and so on. So what do we have to say about those things? What do the progressives think about these things? We always have this we are always making this mistake. Like if we can, you know, tell enough people about the numbers, about climate change, everybody will be convinced. Unfortunately not. That's not happening. So we have to think about, let's say, when we, if you're talking about climate, we have to talk about anxiety. How do we deal with anxiety? How are we proposing the people to deal with anxiety? Because they are these right-wing populists or leaders with fascist inclinations. They have an answer to this. They say, no, I'm like, you don't have to feel fear because it's not happening. Here you go. What's your answer? This is how politics is done. I mean, like, uh, you cannot do politics from a defensive point of action. You have to, you know, propose something new. So this is going to be the... The biggest question of 21st century in terms of realpolitik, I think. Ajay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Megan. That's all the time we have for today. You can read the New Statesman's international coverage at newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday with a new episode. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 